Hi there, I'm Caroline Lee, and I'd like to welcome you to Authors and Audiences. I'm a Scottish Texan, and before I was a young adult novelist, I had a long career in public relations and media strategy. So if you're an author or an illustrator, I'm here to help you present yourself and your books in public with confidence and professionalism. On Authors and Audiences, my amazing guests and I share with you our top presentation tips and key promotion strategies, so you'll always feel well prepared to talk about yourself and your books in any public setting, whether online or in person. And whether you're talking to two people or 200, to make sure that you feel excitement, not fear. So whatever sorts of books you create and wherever you are on your publishing path, Authors and Audiences is for you. So welcome back to Authors and Audiences. And today I'm excited to be introducing you to Nora Woodsey, author of novels The Control, Problem and Lifeless and the novella When the Wave Collapses. Her next book, The States, will be out in April 2024. After short careers in finance and tech, Nora began writing novels featuring subjects of which she says she has intense interest, but not quite expertise, which I think is brilliant, such as history, physics, genetics, sociology and gender studies. She's a fourth generation Brooklynite, although she's now living over in the sun on the West Coast. As I said, I'm excited to have Nora join me, partly because she's bringing something new to authors and audiences, as all her books have been published independently rather than through traditional publishing houses. And also because I always enjoy talking to women who break into traditionally male areas of publishing, like science fiction in this case. So welcome, Nora, to authors and audiences. Thank you for having me. So you spend a lot of time creating new scientific possibilities in your book, whether it's about time travel or teleportation. So tell us a little bit about the books that you've published so far. Yeah, so um, my first book is uh, Lifeless, and it was sort of uh, an encapsulation of my college studies. I studied history of science, and the protagonist in that book is a uh, starts out as a young girl who has sort of blossoming interest in science, and it follows her experiences through the major events over 600 years. And that one's science fiction in the sense that it is fiction and it is science, but it's not um, what I think a lot of people sort of perceive to be science fiction, you know, space lasers and, you know, um, habitations on other planets, those sorts of things. I love those books. That's just not really what I write. And then 600 the, years of time travel. So that that's a fairly good science. <laughs> right. It, it's it's clearly not real. Um, but I, I use it more as a mechanism to talk about sort of the durability of social issues and and also to sort of describe how science has evolved in that time, particularly medical science. And then my second book, a cute little novella um, just about teleportation and it's three different universes and how. We're all sort of interconnected. That's sort of the, the message that, you know, even people who exist in parallel universes might have some sort of uh, role to play in our lives. And then my most recent book, The Control Problem, is about a young woman who has to find her place in the world, has to decide what her goal is in life after she discovers that she's part of a science experiment by a tech company. And that one, I really wanted to talk about the sort of 
pressure that's on women in particular uh, within friendships and within family structures and within a capitalist society and how we sort of move through that and maybe find ourselves and our motivations as we go along. Yeah. I mean, clearly sort of all the sociological and gender issues are very much part of you. And and you clearly have a history of science degree and and an interest in science. How much research and prep work went into all that stuff? Because, you know, there's a fine line between I think what makes science for me, what makes science fiction real is when it's science fiction that you believe could happen, uh, either in a parallel universe or, or in the future, rather than something that's so chaotic, it puts it into fantasy worlds. So, you know, it must have taken a lot of research to to get that kind of what could become science in the future and settle down into a real plot line. Absolutely. Yeah. I. I sort of, so the first book, I sort of based it all off of just this one little letter in this amazing book by Rosemary Horrocks. It's, um, it's all translations of letters and things from around the time of the Black Death. And there was just one letter in between two priests and they were talking about how they were getting out of giving last rites to people who were dying by going to the orphanages and getting all the girls who were left over. Everybody was taking the boys to go work in the fields and do all the manual labor. But the girls were left behind. And so this guy said, I had this great idea. I'm going to go get all these orphan girls and give them the sacraments, give them the ability to give last rites to all these dying people. But what happened was the girls who were able to, you know, for biological things we understand now, um, able to survive infections or were not infected themselves, they survived. And the villagers began to worship these girls as saints. And it caused a lot of conflict between these this priest and uh, these orphan girls. So sometimes it kicks off like that. And then I have to do all kinds of research to fill in all the gaps as time went along. Um, For the control problem, that took me years and years of research. Um, I think I read about 20 books and who knows how many journal articles and, you know, I would like cook dinner for the kids and watch a Nova on my headphones, <laughs> just making sure I didn't miss anything because I really wanted it to be as accurate as possible because much of the technology I used in the control problem are things that either exist or have patent applications or they're all based on those things. Originally it was going to be like, you know, she's a real robot inside of like human skin, but that that's not realistic. And I thought it would be more interesting to be as precise as possible um, and to embellish how we treat medical experiment subjects, um, but really use that as like a scaffolding for telling this story about how we exist and how women themselves exist and the pressures we're under. And yeah, and how maybe tech overlooks who we are, medical experimentation too. Uh, there's lots of medications that we get prescribed for things like, um, I, I'm not going to give examples, um, <laughs> but uh, where they specifically only tested on male rats and chimpanzees because they didn't want to deal with the, you know, the trouble of menstrual cycles. So there's medications that completely don't work when you're menstruating or when you have fluctuating hormone levels. So I I sort of went into that too a little bit in the book, just how 
inconvenient parts of us are in society and sort of yeah, but and how society rather ignores those inconvenient things that women have to deal with on a very, very regular basis. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like, like, to your point, if I were to make the science silly or inaccurate, it would distract from the message I'm trying to give. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge to be to look at a really cool thing you've made up and find out it's ri- ridiculous. You can't you can't make that up and to let it go. and rewrite it and do it accurately fantastic and so the next book the states comes out in april that's something a little bit different isn't it and frankly any jane austen retelling is is great with me so tell us about that one and and why you've gone in a slightly different direction this time yeah so the the um the beginning of that book was actually uh nanowrimo from 2020 um, I had just had a baby, so I'm holding my baby and typing on my laptop um, while my kids are doing Zoom school, my older kids. And um, I wanted I just felt like I write such dark stories Um I wanted to take a break and write something happy. And I wrote this sort of story about a young woman who goes to Ireland and everybody's there excited to see her. And it's all sunshine and rainbows and um she's accepted and there was no conflict i i hit the word count but it didn't it wasn't a complete story and so i took a look at it after i finished the control problem and i felt like the good parts of it were very much like persuasion uh by jane austen and i love that book and i thought i really feel good when i read very well done retellings of Jane Austen books. And if this is a story that I'm trying to put out into the world to make people feel better, why don't I lean into that? And why don't I really challenge myself and try to do a really good job? So yeah, I, I took the sort of idea of this young woman who's Irish American and wants to go back to Ireland um, and reconnect with a lost love from eight years ago. Um, and, and then sort of tweak it so that, you know, where there's actually a science fiction mechanic, because that's me, where the idealized things that I wrote are her experiences within this dream machine that she has on, uh, that she wears at night. And then she has to decide if she's actually going to go and see if she can make a life for herself there, if it's even worth it, if it's what she wants. Um, because in real life, people are messier. And so, yeah, I, I just I wanted to write something that felt good. And I just, I love Jane Austen. I love really good retellings, not the bad retellings. The bad retellings make me very angry. Um, but, yeah. you know. It, I, I have to say, I love that idea of doing NaNoWriMo in 2020 and coming out with a book that has no conflict whatsoever. It's like, oh, I think we all wanted to write those books where nobody had any conflict because we were living conflict at that time, weren't we? Oh, my goodness. Yes. And, yeah, it was clearly like, therapy <laughs> wasn't you know um but yeah so that's that's sort of where, where I went with it excellent excellent so you know this is authors and audiences so let's talk about your audiences um because science fiction is is very often not thought as thought of as a genre either for women readers or about women characters or even written by women and is that something that 
has frustrated you, you know, both as a reader and as a writer. Um, do you think actually that is changing? I think so. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, you know, um, I feel like we have, we have pushed girls and young women to go into tech. They, they, you know, um, my kids have STEM focused lessons all the time in school. And so you've got generations of young women and girls who are aware of various different sort of uh, science things. And, you know, not that we weren't aware before, but the emphasis is greater. And, um, I know a young woman who, uh, her, her teachers and her parents all pushed her to be an engineer. And so she went and worked at a tech company for a while and hated it and left. So if you look at where she is now, you wouldn't know that she has an engineering background. And I think that's pretty common, actually. And so I feel like, though it may be a small audience, there is a growing audience of young women who are um, interested in science, maybe not to the point where they want to work in it, but have that sort of familiarity with those concepts. Um, but also, you know, um, I think science fiction really does an excellent job as uh, sort of being a vehicle for describing social change and conflict. Um, the sort of erratic nature of technology is a good sort of metaphor for how things have been operating, you know, since the beginning of written record. Right. But yeah, I, you know, I, I just as a reader myself, I found books like, you know, the power by Naomi Alderman um, is just a fantastic science fiction book that is more about the people and the experiences of the women in it um, and the men. And, um, yeah, I think it's changing. So do you feel you actually write solely for women readers or are you trying to get female protagonists and female or women's issues out there in the guise of science fiction to see, to let anybody pick them up, whatever, you know, whoever they are? Yeah, I mean, I feel like everybody loves Frankenstein, right? Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein and and as I understand it, that was her sort of processing the loss of her child. So I think science fiction has always been, you know, since its sort of inception about individual experiences, you know, when it's when it's good. I do tend to think of my audience as women, but I do try to world build in a way so that everybody feels there's somebody that somebody can latch on to, whether it's, you know, someone non, non-binary, male, female, you know, um, and anything like that. And I feel like I do feel like I get some hostility for some of the issues I discuss, particularly in the control problem um, from mostly one direction. But I'm not trying to exclude anyone, you know, but if if the story doesn't speak to them, you know, that's fine. Um, there's lots of yeah. things that don't speak to me. Um, I, I write female protagonists that have fat genes, you know, and have gynecological exams and, you know, uh, cry at commercials sometimes. Like I, you know, the, these are, I try to write protagonists that are a reflection of how I experience the world. They're, they're real women in a not yet real situation. Yeah, exactly. Would that, that make sense? Yeah. Um, and how much do you think about your readers when you're writing? Or are you one of these people that goes, I just write what I want to read and hope that it connects with other people as well? I feel like the first draft 
is entirely what I want to read. And then as I go through, I take a sort of step back and think about what are the things I need to re-explain? The things that, you know, or um, what's a joke that would be funny to somebody else? You know, um, how would, if I were reading this aloud to somebody, how would I modify this so that I could bring somebody along with me a little easier? So, yeah, that's really sort of the structure for me. I love that. I just taught a class at the weekend where we actually spent part of Sunday afternoon um, reading aloud their first sort of couple of pages of their novels. And and I had them read first page themselves and then hand the second page over to someone else. So they were listening back to their own words. And it was fascinating to see both. You know, this was, you know, pre-debut people and they were possibly listening to their word or reading their own words out loud for the first time and certainly listening to their own words for the first time. It was absolutely fascinating. The change that happened in their minds, hearing their own words read back to them. I just, I loved it. It was such a, it was a bit of an experiment to see if it would work. And I, I loved it. I've done about any of them. I really, really loved it. Um, so a little later, we're going to be talking about the kind of nuts and bolts of independently publishing a book. But, you know, just now I'd love to know about what you've done to kind of enjoy promoting the books and, and, you know, whether they've been public events or if you, do sort of public speaking, social media, all that kind of stuff. Because that to me is the huge challenge of self-publishing and independently publishing books is that you don't have the kind of workhorse that is the traditional publishing PR industry and and even just the brand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a real challenge. And it's, it's honestly not something I've cracked yet. And I've sort of felt like my whole my my plan right now is to write as many good books as I can and add a new piece every time and see and you know so by book six I'll feel like I have a little bit more in my toolkit but you know for now I think um I'm starting my promotion a little bit earlier so I can send out things earlier and you know sort of build up a little bit more interest and you know it I feel like it's a little challenging for me. One of the, the jobs I had before writing was content moderation, which involves really looking at how websites are exploited by bad actors. And so my comfort with social media is pretty low. I have seen too much. <laughs> and so uh, I do try. I do. There's There are places to find me. There's, you know, Instagram or whatever, but I don't feel feel good about making a community there. But that said, I have been on the internet since I was, you know, a young teenager. So I, I do have some comfort with talking to people online in terms of live events and in-person things. The control problem was really my best sort of most complete book. And it came out sort of at a funky time with COVID. So, you know, I had some Zoom things lined up. They fell through. I sold a bunch of hardcovers in a friend's bookshop that was closing. Oh, no. <laughs> Which, you know, uh, I'm glad I made her some money. Um, but, yeah. you know, it, it, I have it, to say, I love, I love what you say about building up your toolkit in terms of building up your back catalog, because one of the things that I've heard over and over again, and I've said as well to, to debut authors is that 
yes, join in all the promotion you can and do all the stuff. But the most important thing that you have to do as a debut author is get the second one underway. And and even even the, the classes that I teach where they're just querying the you know, it's a six week class. And the final one is right. You've got all your queries, your query letters, your synopsis, all that ready to go. And the list of who you're sending it to. Now, what's your next project going to be? Because you send those letters and you start writing the next one because nothing sells your first like your second and nothing sells your your first and second like your third. So I love that idea of actually trying rather than throwing one book out into the into the world and hoping it hits, actually just putting your head down and getting a number of things out so that actually the point at which one breaks through, people have an awful lot of other stuff to go back to and pick up. Yeah, I think exactly. that's a great idea. Yeah. And and to people, there are people who ask me or, you know, sort of say, oh, well, you know, I, I've always wanted to write this book, you know, et cetera. And if I, I say, if you just feel like you have one or two books in you, you should traditionally publish nothing about this tells me that this is a good route for someone who just has one or two stories they want to tell. And that's great. There's a lot of, there's many amazing authors who stop at one or two books and we, we need them. And yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah, Fantastic. So we're going to take a break now, but we're going to come back shortly to talk about the business end of self-publishing books. And also to check in with another very special guest from the Books for Maui Bookish Auction organisers who first introduced Nora to me and to authors and audiences. So uh, we will see you in a couple of minutes. Are you an author looking to boost your book's visibility or to develop your personal brand in the literary world? Or to keep track on all the interesting promotional tools that other authors seem to be using? Then I've got a newsletter just for you. Caroline Leach Writes is, along with the Authors and Audiences podcast, my source for you to get expert tips on presenting, promoting, yes, and even perfecting your writing skills. From first draft to final manuscript, from querying to launching to branding, my newsletter will help you with great tips and useful insights to introduce yourself and your books to the world. Join me as I gather in a powerful community of passionate authors and literary enthusiasts and be the first to receive news of my interviews with best-selling authors, detailed marketing strategies that work, swipe sheets so you too can harness the power of social media, and also some occasional writing inspiration that will ignite your creativity. So, whether you're a seasoned writer or just starting your journey, please go to carolineleachwrites.com slash newsletter today and hit subscribe. Not only will you allow me to illuminate your path forward, I'll also send you a free gift just to get us started. Let me help you build up your knowledge, your networks, and help you turn over the next page in your writing career. That's carolineleachwrites.com forward slash newsletter or click the link below in the show notes. So, welcome back. Now, we're going to talk now about self-publishing or independent publishing, depending on who you talk to, um, and about how much time and energy you need to spend on the business side of your writing life. So, you know, compared to the creative side of when you're actually writing your books, how much do you have to work on all the other stuff to actually get the books out and get them promoted? Yeah, I, I 
if you figure with, you know, I say I work 30 hours a week um, on being an author. Um, when I'm writing a book, 20 of those hours are writing and 10 of those are, you know, uh, managing ad campaigns, um, you know, setting up meetings, uh, you know, contacting bookstores, you know, all those sorts of things. When the book is uh, done, which the, the States is in the can, um, now it's basically my entire job. Um, I'm going to give myself a few months to read and then also promote um, and work on the promotion campaign for this book. Um, and then hopefully, you know, next month, maybe two months, I'll start writing the next book, um, which I already have sort of outlined in my head, but, um, it, it's a lot of time. It's, it's constant. And, um, yeah, it's just constant. And you, you always have to be working on it. Yeah. I mean, I think I was, I suppose, surprised at the amount of non creative work that has to be done even going with a traditional publisher it takes up an awful lot of time and you know as you're building up to a promotion sure you absolutely have to give it almost 100% of your time doing the promotional work for the new book um, but you have to try and otherwise find that balance I, I totally agree but I also know that you are very determined that your books will stand up to any traditionally published book in terms of the quality of the publication. So, you know, the ed, not only the your writing, but also the way they're edited and proofed, etc. So, you know, how do you how did you learn about that and how much do you get involved in the kind of handling of every single editor that you're engaging and how many of them are in your publishing process? Yeah, so um I have a primary editor, uh Karen Asenbray, and she is amazing. She's wonderful. Um and uh she really pushes back on me um and tells me where I'm going wrong and suggests how to fix it and doesn't get offended when I do something totally different and will tell me if that's correct or not. So uh once once the book is sort of in a place where I feel like it's time for her to see it. She does one pass. And then um, I have uh, copy editors, you know, uh, checking for sort of spelling mistakes, things like that. And then I actually have Kara look at it again just to see if I've introduced anything stupid. <laughs> um, and then, um, yeah, so like uh, the the other sort of while this is all happening, I have to get the cover artist lined up. And this is probably where I'm the most different from other independent authors. Um, a lot of them will go on some of these sort of gig services and find somebody. And um, that's great. Um, I, you know, but um, my husband worked when we met, he was a camera operator um, and also a graphic design freelance sort of guy. And so I have a certain sort of feeling about how, what it's actually worth. I've seen him struggle for hours on a bus map, you know, it's, it looks simple. It's really hard and you're paying for, years of experience and um yeah and so i i like to really try and find cover artists who um i i want to give the reins to and pay them well and see what what comes out because i will have this cover forever um i don't intend to change my covers you know so it you you think of it as an investment for the entire duration of your life essentially and, uh, yeah, so that, that's sort of my philosophy around that. And 
I, I feel like, you know, there's other things I've sort of included in uh, the process this time. I have a translator because I have a lot of Irish texts. And so I hired an Irish translator. And then um, I have a lot of descriptions of neuroscience. So I contacted a neuroscientist um, and then I'm going to have the entire interior designed. Um, I did that myself last time thinking, how hard could it be? I'll get how started. hard could it be? And then you uh, discovered it's a full time job if you don't know what you're doing. So I'll hire someone this time. No. <laughs> I love that because if you pick up a book that has literally been self-published, like self being the active word, and you can tell within seconds. And yet you can pick up another book that you were surprised to know was an indie book because the quality is so high and it's clearly been through a whole process of of professionals. And yes, it costs money and yes, it costs time to do it. The end quality is is so much better. So if you're writing a family history that nobody but you and the family are going to read, then sure, you're not going to spend, you know, a few thousand dollars on getting up to professional standards. But at the same time, if you want to have a career as a professional author, then you need to bring it to the standard of that professional authors do, don't you? So I'm I'm really impressed with the amount of of thought you give to it and the amount of um you know, investment that you make in time and money in getting it to that, that level. And uh, I think that's a lesson that a lot of people should learn because the indie side is, is very exciting. Um, and there's all sorts of possibilities, as we've seen from any number of, of incredibly successful indie authors. But um, you have to take it seriously. So, yeah. And so does all that managing the business side of things come easily to you? It sounds like an absolute nightmare for me. I'm the least organized perfectionist person in the world. <laughs> it sounds like hell on earth for me. Yeah, you know, um, it, it can feel, it's a lot more comfortable for me than selling. I, I don't have that gear and I'm trying to develop that gear, but I, I'm good at collaborating and I'm good at sort of project management and things like that. I, um, I could keep a lot of, different roles in my head and delegate. I think one of the sort of most important things is to hire people you trust to just go and do it and, and then trust them when they come back with what they have to say. Um, you know, uh, and you know, sometimes I'll talk to people who really want to publish a book and they don't, I don't feel like they're comfortable hearing negative feedback from an editor and whether you're traditional or independent, if you're not comfortable hearing hard truths, it's probably not the right job for you. Um, you should write it up and then put it on your shelf and share it with friends and family, you know. Um, yeah. But you, if you expect people to buy something, you need to put it together as a good uh, product. Yeah, yeah it, this, this part does come easy, yeah. Excellent. And so what are you working So you mentioned you will give yourself a couple of months to really work on this one, but you have the next idea for the next one uh, coming out. So. Is that going to be a bit, a little bit different again, or is that going back to, to away from John Jane Austen territory? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I, I, I'm flexible, <laughs> but um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some advice I've gotten from uh, really good independent authors, um, A.K. Faulkner, who is just insisting that independent authors have to write series. Everybody has to write a series. Um, so my novella 
sort of opened up a possibility for a series. Uh, so I think I might write a sequel to that. Um, I have an okay idea for it and I'll see how that goes. That's my next challenge is try a series. Yeah. What a great idea. And so what's been other than that about writing a series, what's been the best advice you've ever received, you know, about the indie author life or, or anything else? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, when I was in high school, um, I, I was, I actually was homeless my last year of high school and, um, I was sort of really cared for and, uh, mentored by my creative writing teacher. And, um, she said to me, you know, you could be an author if you wanted to. And I said, yeah, well, you know, like I'm working in a call center and sleeping on somebody's couch. Uh, I, I don't see that happening for me. And she said, if you go and live your life and you go and have experiences, and you build all that into yourself, your stories are going to be more full and complete. It'll keep your desire and your interest in writing will keep and you just hang on to it until you're comfortable. And I found that to be really good, comforting advice, but also just really um, pragmatic. You know, that you can there's a lot of really great books that are expertly crafted. And I'm not sure the author has anything to say because they were in grad school and hadn't really experienced life yet. So, yeah, that was really good advice. Yeah. Well, also, it, I agree more because there are some incredibly talented writers in their teens and they all want to be published by the time they're 21 because that's huge. And, yeah, there's no reason why they shouldn't be. But at the same time, they can keep practicing their craft and writing other stuff that could be published without necessarily writing the next great American novel or British novel or wherever, because um, they're only in their teens. <laughs> yeah. They put pressure on themselves to to do that. I I did a nice little workshop over the summer for teenagers um, who didn't have other activities they could be doing, and um, and. And a lot of them really do put a lot of pressure on themselves for this. And I sort of explain to them, what are the other things you're interested in? You know, what what's your other sort of concepts for a career? What are the other like go do those things. And then when you've done those things, you can come back and you can write something that accurately describes those things or how you felt at those times or the conflicts you found, because otherwise it's going to be incomplete. Yeah, fantastic. So um just a little bit of speed round, fun and fast answers here. So are you an introvert or an extrovert? I'm an introvert. <laughs> and do you think of yourself as a storyteller or a writer? I'm definitely a storyteller. And were you read to as a child, either at home or at school? And so that was a, a no? No, I know. My, so uh, my mother worked really long hours as a nurse and uh, wasn't really home a lot. And um, when my grandmother would come to stay with us, she would tell me stories. She didn't really like to read because she had very poor eyesight, but she would tell these stories from memory that would go on and on. And they were stories from Ireland or, um, you know, uh, myths and things like that. And that's the closest I have. And I mean, it was amazing. What a gift. What a gift. So do you remember buying a book with your own money for the first time? You know, I remember going with my grandmother uh, to like, uh, you know, one of the secondhand bookstores and um, 
I remember buying a choose your own adventure that I had already read. <laughs> um, but the idea of owning my own book was powerful. And so I bought a little beat up choose your own adventure. That I the great thing about that is you could have a different adventure every time you read it. Exactly. <laughs> so where do you write now? Where do you write best? And, and do you snack or drink while you're eating? While you're oh, writing, rather. Yeah, I write here in my office. Um, uh, I have a little couch. Um, and, uh, I definitely snack when I'm editing. Editing is emotionally very difficult for me. I mean, as much as I say I do listen to the advice, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Um, and, uh, I have, I probably gain actual pounds during editing. Love that. I, I love that. What's, um, and so what do you wish you'd known? Before you started writing, you know, really moving towards a goal of, of publication. Yeah, um, I think I wish I had learned to be a little bit more patient. I think I wrote, you know, I released the control problem and I thought, OK, this is this is so good. I got to get it out the door. And had I waited four or five months um just to get myself in the right headspace for promotion and all those things, I think that book would have done better. And I did it a disservice by not, by rushing. And so, yeah, I just wish I, in general, could be a little bit more patient. Yeah. And so where can people buy your books? Uh, So the control problem is basically everywhere. Um, It's uh, it's on Ingram Spark. So they distribute to all major bookstores, Um, you know, I there it's in libraries um, and uh, I think all three are actually in most library systems. So what about book buying? Where's your favorite indie bookstore? Because I would love to be able to connect with them in the show notes. Yeah. So my favorite bookstore is Greenlight Bookstore in Brooklyn. Um, I love their recommendations and um, I get most of my books from there. And where can people find you? Where's your website and social media? Yeah, my website is norawoodsy.com. I'm on Instagram. I don't use it very often. Um, I've been using Blue Sky a lot. Uh, I really like it. Um, I was on X. Uh, I'm not on there anymore. But nice. With so many people. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. So thank you so much for coming and joining. And thank you for finding me through the Books for Maui auction and I'm going to be talking to one of the organisers of the Books for Maui auction so we can catch up with a little bit of of their news as well but it's been absolutely delightful to talk to you Nora and uh, I can't wait to read the states when it comes out it sounds absolutely fascinating and I and that's from somebody who is not a naturally science fiction type person at all so um Good luck with all your books and thank you for joining me on Authors and Audiences. Thank you for having me. So I hope you enjoyed my chat with Nora Woodsy and here's a bonus for you too. Nora and I were originally introduced because of quite tragic circumstances. If you remember back in August, the beautiful Hawaiian island of Maui was devastated by wildfires with whole towns being destroyed and huge swathes of the island being eaten up by the flames. And even as the fires raged, though, a group of Hawaiian authors came together to organise an online auction, a bookish auction, as they referred to it, called simply Books for Maui. Over several days, 
authors, bookstores, publishers, editors, agents, podcasters, and other publishing professionals put things up as donations to the auction. And by the end of three days, almost 1,000 winning bidders had raised an extraordinary amount of money to support the Maui relief effort. I offered up a guest slot on authors and audiences, and I was thrilled that it attracted quite a lot of incredibly generous bids. And ultimately, Nora was the winner. The auction took a huge amount of effort from the organising team, and I'm thrilled to have one of them join me now to give us an update on the total amount that they raised and about how things are going now on Maui as the island's community recovers from all the fire damage. Welcome to Authors and Audiences, Kealani Natani, and I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, your willingness to participate in our auction and then have us here on your podcast today. Well, first of all, how are things on Maui now, you know, a few weeks after the fires? So it's been about three months uh, since the fire happened. There were 99 confirmed deaths. A handful of people are still missing. They've been able to find most people. Um, 3,000 homes and businesses were destroyed. And it was estimated to be about $6 billion to restore everything. Uh, so watching all of the bookish community come together and donate so much money has been so meaningful to all of us. Um, we're just so grateful for everyone who has participated. Well, I live in Houston, Texas, and, and I'm used to a slightly wetter danger coming from from the natural disaster zone in terms of hurricanes. But I also know how long it takes for these, this kind of rebuild to happen and, and how many how many lives are devastated and will stay devastated for a very long time. You know, even now in Houston, when there's a heavy rainfall, there's almost like a PTSD goes on in the community of people looking to make sure that the, you know, whether the floods are gonna hit houses again. And so I cannot imagine you know, so close to the fires, but even going on from that, how the community is going to to get through this. But, you know, I think everybody in the community who took part in the auction was so desperate to do something. And I just think your team was amazing that you turned it around so quickly and you must have just given up everything uh, else in your life for those few days to get it done. So tell us a bit about the auction and, and which other authors were part of your team. And who came up with the idea in the first place? Sure. So we are all, there's seven of us, and we are all connected in some way, shape, or form. Um, some of us had been talking about it. And then Joanna Ho reached out to each one of us individually and said, hey, there was a bookish auction that had happened before with books for Turkey and Syria earlier this year. And I was wondering if you guys wanted to do something similar. And so we all said, yes, we'll do it. Uh, we got together with one of the organizers from uh, Books for Turkey and Syria, Nadine Presley, and she kind of helped us to kick off how to organize everything. Um, so the organizers we had were Malia Maunakea. She is the author of Lay and the Fire Goddess, which is a middle grade novel. Kayla Kendall, oh, sorry, Malia is Hawaiian. And we have Kayla Kendall. She is a young adult and adult author with unannounced book news that I won't announce here. And then we have Erica Corvall Myers. She's Hawaiian. She's not an author, but she's a contributor to Scholastic's Rising Voices initiative. 
we have Shartua Soa, who is Tongan. She is the author illustrator of Punk Aloha. She has, I think she has about three announced books coming out soon. And then we have Teresa Sianatonu, who is an award-winning poet. And then she has an unannounced picture book that will be out in a couple years. Of course, we have Joanna Ho. Um, she's most known for Isaac Kiss in the Corners. And then um, me, Kelani Netane, I'm the other Tala Learn to Siva, which comes out in May. And so we're all Pacific Islander authors or educators. Um, and then, of course, we have Joanna Ho, who's Asian. Fantastic. And there were close to a thousand items to bid on and I think it was 997 or something bidders won so how much did you raise by the time it was all added up so by the end by the end of the live auction we had raised $170,000 which really blew our minds because we weren't expecting to raise that much money the very first day that the auction went live we thought oh it'd be so great if we would raise $20,000 to us that was such a huge number but when we saw within the hour that we had raised $2,000 and then the next hour or so it was 10,000 our minds were just blown we couldn't believe the outpouring of love that everybody had for our community um, so by the end of that week we had $170,000 and then Scholastic so I'm a Scholastic author and then Joanna is also a Scholastic author our editor we have the same editor she put us in touch with Scholastic's humanitarian uh, department and they decided to donate $25,000 and then they also decided to donate the same amount in books to the schools affected by the fire so one of our organizers is working with them they um, they'll circle back in a few months to be able to donate that same amount of books Um, and then as the donation receipts started pouring in because we didn't take any monetary donations. We asked bidders to donate directly to the organizations that we supported and then send us their receipts. So as the receipts came in, we noticed that so many people were donating above their bid. And then there were people who didn't win bids, but they wanted to donate money and they wanted their donations to be counted to toward our total amount. So the exact total amount was $208,000 Oh, sorry, $208,699.02. So we went far above what we ever thought was possible. Um, and it just goes to show how much our com- our community comes together, how much we support each other. Uh, we see that all throughout online. I love our book community so much. But one of the things that astonished me so much was that we are mostly Pacific Islander authors. And if you ever look at the statistics of diversity in the book industry, you'll notice that we are the least represented in all of the book industry from children's books to a, there's not much statistics for adult books, but children's books, adult books, and in the publishing professional industry as well. So last year we had 13 books that the CCD, CCBC found, uh, which was 0.4%, and which was really high for us. That's a record for us. It's normally around two or five books. So as one of the most marginalized communities in the publishing industry, we're so amazed that we're able to raise such a large amount of money. For us, that was very significant. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. And I think also, you know, as the previous auctions had done as well, knowing that you are not responsible for dispersing the money Mm -hmm. uh, is huge because, oh, I cannot imagine the chaos that 
you would put yourselves in and the and the kind of legal dangers as well. Mm-hmm. So just in case anyone still wants to make a donation to the organizations that you supported, remind us who the, they were. There were four of them, I think, weren't there? Yes, there were four. So these organizations, we deliberately chose ones that already had strong ties within our community. Most of us have had um, experiences with each of these organizations. So we knew that they would have the connections within the community and with government officials to be able to know what to do with the money. Uh, So the first one that we chose was Kamehameha Schools and the Powahi Foundation. So they're two separate foundations, but they work together. Um, And so they supported the educational needs of Maui youth and children. Another one we chose was the Hawaii Community Foundation they host a lot of the monetary needs for the Hawaiian community. So with their fundraiser, they supported evolving needs like shelter, food, financial assistance, and other services. We also chose Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. Uh, So they provided relief efforts for organizations, small businesses, families, and cultural groups. And then the Maui Food Bank, which of course we know provides food to those in need. Um, Mm -hmm. So all of those, some of those fundraisers might be finished already, um, but a few of those are still going on. And so if you're looking for uh, organizations to continue to support, uh, one website that still has that list is MauiRecovers.org. Fantastic. Well, we'll put all those uh, into the show notes and, and would encourage everyone to to do a little bit more because you know I haven't been to Hawaii. I'm as you can hear, I'm not even from from the US. Um, I think Hawaii has place in everybody's hearts. You know, we've seen it so often on TV and in movies, and it's such a paradise uh, in everybody's minds that I think um, there's a, a an urgency to save that paradise and the people that that keep the land safe um, from uh, everyone else, even people who haven't been there or not. So, you know, congratulations to you all. That 200 plus is amazing. That is just a huge deal. And um, and I hope that actually what you did was also, as a side uh, thing, is promote the Pacific Islanders books everywhere else. So, you know, people will hopefully be looking out for all of your books now. So tell me about your book, because I was really excited to hear that you would, you're you debuting in 2024. And anybody who listened to last season's podcast will know I have a huge fondness for debut authors, and I desperately want to help them as much as I can. So talk to me about your picture book that's coming out in April. So my picture book, sorry, it comes out in May. So in about six months, um, it's illustrated by Young Ho, who also illustrated uh, Joanna's book, Eyes That Kiss in the Corners, and her other books. Um, It's called Tala Learns to Siva. Siva in Samoan means to dance. So it's a story about her learning to dance, a traditional Samoan dance called the Taolunga. And so the story goes that she wants to dance the taolunga like her auntie, um, but her legs are too bouncy. Her arms are too stiff. She doesn't have exactly what her auntie has when she dances. And so when she tries to perform at her grandpa's birthday, she freezes on stage and she's not sure how she can go on. Uh, so the climax of that of my book is that she needs to find the courage to keep dancing. So it's all about resilience, family and community. And so for me, I'm Hawaiian and Samoan. So they're two separate islands. And so I 
deliberately chose to write this book about a Samoan girl because there are aren't as many Samoan books for children out there. Fantastic. Well, I will presumably is it open for pre-orders yet? Yes, it is. Um Scholastic asked if I could support an indie bookstore. So it's on bookshop. That's the one that Fantastic. I support right now. Excellent. So we will put up all the links for that. I will certainly be uh, ordering that now because uh, I love picture books and especially uh, especially having met you as well. So that's wonderful. So thank you so much for coming on, Kealani, and to all your team uh, that together, the, the Maui book auction. And uh, good luck with your book launch. And maybe I can get you back on later in the year to hear about your debut experience as an author. Um, and when you're actually going out to find your first audience, that would be quite fun, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the time that you took. Well, send our love to Maui. We do all care desperately that it survives. I will. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Authors and Audiences, and I'd love to hear about anything that resonated with you or what questions came up that you'd like me to answer in a future episode or in one of my Instagram Live Q&As. If you have learned something today, or if you have a question for me, please reach out to me via my website at carolineleachwrites.com or on any of the Authors and Audiences social media pages. All of those links are in the show notes below. Please subscribe to Authors and Audiences wherever you get your podcasts so that you won't miss any of my amazing guests or my presentation and promotion craft tips. And remember, any five-star ratings or positive reviews that you give me will make sure that all those pesky algorithms let other authors and illustrators find their way to authors and audiences so that they can feel confident about getting out there in public too. Thanks again for joining me. And I look forward to having you back here with me next time on authors and audiences.